0: 99% Invisible is brought to you by the Lexus GX and Sirius XM. As a 99PI listener, we know that you delight in exploring regional architecture wherever you go. If you're looking for an adventure SUV that promises both luxury and capability, the new Lexus GX is just the vehicle you've been looking for. Enabled with Sirius XM, the 2024 GX comes equipped with a rich array of content you can enjoy on your next road trip. In true 99PI fashion, get in a GX today and experience how great design marries form and function. To learn more about the GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com GX and SiriusXM.com Lexus. Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an outdoor enthusiast, you'll find what you're looking for. You can explore the grounds of America's first English settlement in Jamestown or shop along the quaint streets of historic Williamsburg and Yorktown. You can dig into the forensics of the country's earliest settlers or experience a day in the life of one. Each day and each trip is uniquely yours. So plan your visit to Williamsburg today. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It is a store-wide, flavor-packed journey of regionally inspired selections. Save on Mediterranean-inspired flavors all over the store. Save on seafood like Whole Branzini. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles and whole wheat pita pockets. Wines from the sun-soaked vineyards of Spain, Greece, and Italy start at just $8.99. Must be 21+. plus. Please drink responsibly. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. The Chicago River used to be completely filthy. I mean, it's not great now, but it used to be so much worse. The people of Chicago were doing disgusting things to it.
1: Essentially using the river as a sewer and all of Chicago's waste, human waste, and also as the stockyards grew up in the city, all of the animal waste was dumped into the river. And it was said that the river was so thick with filth that a chicken could walk across it without getting her feet wet.
0: That's Elizabeth Colbert, author of the new book, Under a White Sky.
1: What needs to be also understood is that the Chicago River, in its original incarnation, it flowed Eastward into Lake Michigan, which was and still is Chicago's sole source of drinking water.
0: So to fix this problem, the city of Chicago carried out a massive project. They reversed the river and sent the sewage water into the Mississippi.
1: When this enormous construction project was completed, which was it was one of the most enormous, concerning projects of its era, uh, there was a facetious headline in the New York Times that said something like, um, water in the Chicago River resembles liquid again.
0: By the way, if you want to know more about how it's even possible to reverse the river, we did a whole story about it, episode 86. It's a good one. Anyway, the river reversal was a big success. Chicagoans had a reliable supply of clean drinking water. But like many large-scale human interventions, there were unintended consequences, The reversal meant two unconnected drainage systems, the Great Lakes and the Mississippi, were suddenly linked up and that invasive species could move from one to the other.
1: Both the Great Lakes and the Mississippi system became highly invaded water systems, especially the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are like, uh, there's like 180 known invasive species established in the Great Lakes. And the species of interest right now, sort of as it was put to me by one, engineer with the Army Corps of Engineers, is Asian carp.
0: If Asian carp reach the Great Lakes, they could pretty much ruin everything. They would eat all of the endangered mollusks and even threaten the safety of human beings.
1: One of the species has the very annoying habit, from a human perspective, of flinging itself out of the water when it's disturbed. And what disturbs it often is a, a... boat, a motor, sound of a motor. And so you get, you know, man v. fish, you get a lot of injuries. You know, I met people whose eye sockets had been broken by Asian carp.
0: Faced with this epidemic of fish jumping out of the water and smacking people in the face, the Army Corps of Engineers were told, well, you have to fix this. And they came up with a series of plans to stop the carp from migrating up the Chicago River like zapping the river with UV radiation or putting in a big filtration system or dumping nitrogen in the water to basically poison the fish. But what they eventually arrived at was the idea of setting up an electric barrier in the water.
1: This underwater sort of U-shaped you know, structure that has these nodes in it that just pulses a lot of voltage through there.
0: So just to recap, we dumped sewage into a river, then reversed its flow by connecting it to an entirely different river, and finally, we electrocuted the river. This is something humans do a lot. We meddle with nature. And years later, we discover that that creates a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And then, we have to meddle with nature all over again. These kinds of interventions are the subject of Elizabeth Colbert's new book. Today we're going to talk with Colbert about all the extreme lengths humans will go to try to undo our mistakes. There's so many examples of situations where people intervene to undo the consequences of previous interventions, but... Uh, One that really caught me in your book is the introduction of cane toads in Australia. So let's start right there. Like, how did cane toads get to Australia?
1: So cane toads are um, native to uh, South America and Central America and the very southernmost tip of Texas, actually. They were introduced all around the world, interestingly enough, into the Caribbean, into Hawaii, and into Australia, Australia under the theory, and I don't know where this theory came from, that they were going to eat the beetles or the beetle grubs that plague sugarcane crops. And so they were introduced into a lot of sugar producing areas. And they were introduced into Australia in the 1930s in the hope that they were going to do something about these pests in Northeast Australia, which is a big sugarcane growing region. Now, I think right now the consensus would be they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing for the sugar cane, but they were like the Asian carp, highly successful invaders. They have, you know, basically no natural predators. They're highly toxic. So anything that does try to eat them drops dead very quickly, uh, which has been, a huge problem for Australia's native wildlife, but they continue to expand around Australia in a coastal region, sort of a ring around Australia. They can't survive very well in the center of Australia, which is simply too arid, but they're very good at exploiting any source of water. And I myself saw this when I went looking for them one night and wherever there was a little puddle from an air conditioner or whatever, there were cane toads.
0: Mm -hmm. and they're particularly pernicious because they can eat anything so they're sort of detrimental to the everything below them on the food chain and they're so toxic they're detrimental to all the predators because when a predator tries to eat them
1: they kill them yeah and another thing that is important to add here is that Australia has no native toads so toads are just a whole you know class of organisms that did not get to Australia, I suppose. Australia has been quite isolated for quite a long time, evolutionarily.
0: You know, there have been interventions, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, more homegrown-style interventions to deal with cane toads from the beginning. Um, Can you talk about toad busters?
1: Yeah, so so toad killing in Australia is a major pastime. People bash toads with golf clubs. They run them over their lawnmowers. They organize you know, toad busting militias to go out and capture toads and put them, they put them in the freezer, which, you know, eventually kills them, but supposedly painlessly, they've come up with sprays. They are constantly looking for ways to reduce their numbers. But when you're talking about, I don't even know if there's an estimate of how many hundreds of millions, it's pretty hard to make a dent in them.
0: As cane toads make their way across the Australian coast, the government is considering more high-tech interventions to stop them. One of those measures is using CRISPR, which is a technique that allows scientists to make small tweaks to DNA.
1: This particular project that I visited at this highly biosecure facility outside of Melbourne, they were using CRISPR to produce toads that were less toxic. They had disabled the gene that creates an enzyme that makes this toxin so potent.
0: There are two good reasons to make cane toads less toxic. For one thing, they won't kill their predators when they're eaten, but also the predators learn a valuable lesson that cane toads taste bad and will make you sick. This has a lot of potential to mitigate the bad effects of cane toads, but for many people, it's a bridge too far.
1: You could potentially disrupt reproduction, so you could potentially have canto's out there, you know, that could not reproduce, and if you manage to spread that trait, then you know you could potentially make a big dent in the toad population. But you know, there's a lot of steps along the way, and you know, evolution being what it is, you know, the question of whether you you could do that is unclear.
0: So you know, the difference between toad busting or even, you know, uh, electrifying carp in in a river and um, using CRISPR. It feels different. It it might not be different. Um, How does it feel to you? Do those things feel different to you?
1: Well, I think that there's sort of this interesting continuum and somewhat slippery slope. And I think that people will you know, look at one intervention and say, oh, yeah, you know, that made sense. And the next one, oh, that made sense, you know, and then you kind of go along and go, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm not so cool about that with that, you know, but I don't subscribe to the notion that there's clearly interventions on one side and clearly interventions on another. They're grayscale, I guess, basically. And where one draws the line isn't is a very individual choice. But I think one of the points of the book is also to try to challenge a little bit or maybe more than a little bit, (laughs) you know, where people do draw the line because gene editing is a technique, for example, that a lot of people find anathema, you know, just shouldn't do it. Now, to be frank, we already do do it a lot, a lot, a lot. Every, I guarantee you, you know, you ate some genetically modified organism in the last few days, you know, Um, it's gene edited corn gene edited soy is ubiquitous in the US but still people might say well you know I, I don't want I don't want anything out on the landscape certain organisms may not be on the landscape and I use the example of the American chestnut which was devastated destroyed basically driven to the very edge of extinction by chestnut blight now scientists in Syracuse New York have developed a blight resistant chestnut that's a transgenic tree and you know the choice is sort of between this tree that has one little gene tweaked that allows it to be uh resistant to chestnut blight or no chestnuts and that's a that's that's a tough choice in my view
0: we've been genetically modifying plants for 10,000 years I mean, look, you've probably eaten transgenic corn, but you've also eaten regular corn, which is the result of agriculture, which is maybe the biggest human intervention that there is. This line between what is a natural intervention versus what is an unnatural intervention is really curious to me. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, it gets very much to this point that there's a continuum, right? I don't think there are too many people around in 2021 who say, you know, plant breeding that really shouldn't be screwing around with that. You know, that's just too, that's just a, you know, bridge too far. You know, it gets to that idea that what you're used to, you're used to, you know, you're used to acres and acres and acres and whole state's worth of corn. And as you say, corn itself is a product of, you know, many, many hundreds or thousands of years of very careful breeding. But, you know, well, it's there. It's always been there. Uh, okay, I'm not and I'm appalled by that. Then some people are, you know, appalled by GMO corn, although, as I say, it's almost impossible to avoid in an American diet. My goal is not to convince anyone not to be appalled. (laughs) Um, But my goal is to challenge, you know, why are we appalled? Is it simply, you know, what we're used to? You know, there are big trade-offs that are being made, to a large extent, unwittingly. And when you bring them to the level of consciousness the questions become pretty complicated.
0: As we go up the scale of human interventions, climate change is pretty much the biggest way people have messed with nature. And it's becoming clear that just reducing our CO2 emissions won't be enough to stop global warming, even if we get to net zero. So scientists are talking about a series of interventions called geoengineering, and they are pretty controversial since they involve messing with the chemistry of the atmosphere. One of these technologies is called carbon capture and storage.
1: I mean, when you hear... All this talk now of going net zero in carbon emissions, what's the net? Well, the net is, you know, you're still going to have a certain amount of emissions uh, and you're going to have to counter that, balance that with negative emissions. So negative emissions are just sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere somehow, we can talk about how, if you'd like, and uh, storing it somehow.
0: You actually spend a lot of money on a carbon capture system where you paid a company uh, to offset your emissions in Europe. Uh, what what happened there?
1: So I, yes, I still spend money. Um, <laughs> I pay a Swiss-based company every month a sum of money. And the idea is that they, um, actually, they're, this machinery is in Iceland. They suck some CO2 emissions out of the air. They're, you know, attributed to me. They suck out some CO2. Uh, unfortunately, it's only a small fraction of my actual emissions. And they do that in this machine that looks like kind of a giant air conditioner. Then they pipe the CO2 very deep underground in Iceland, where all the rock is volcanic rock. And, you know, under p- heat and pressure and with a lot of water, actually, the- there's a chemical reaction where the CO2 reacts with the rock and forms calcium carbonate. So it's you know, locked up there underground, presumably permanently. So that is one form of carbon dioxide removal.
0: And so what are the pros and cons of this? I mean, does it really solve the problem? What do you think of it?
1: Well, the, the pros is you're taking, you know, you're taking CO2 out of the air and you're locking it up. So that is the obvious pro. The cons are the question of practicality at scale. How's that? I mean, the whole project that I visited in Iceland and they're scaling it up it's supposed to be able to deal with 4,000 tons of CO2 a year okay which you know might sound like a lot but is ridiculously trivial compared to the 40 billion tons of CO2 that humans pour into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels every year so when you think about that and it takes energy to get my CO2 out of the atmosphere. In Iceland, you know, one of the reasons this project is located in Iceland for all sorts of reasons, it's located actually at a geothermal plant, which is making, you know, producing electricity using the geothermal energy, you know, from the center of the earth. But if you imagine doing this at huge scale, how are you getting that energy? And then where are you putting this stuff? You know, there's room in basalt of Iceland for a lot of CO2, but you know not for all of our CO2. So you have to locate these facilities in various places. You'd have to potentially start piping the CO2 around. I mean, carbon dioxide removal using you know, technology has to be, when you think about it, to make a difference on the scale of the energy infrastructure we have now. And that's just huge. I don't know if you want to call them downsides, but those are the obvious very evident obstacles
0: another large-scale intervention like this that you wrote about is solar geoengineering and and that's interventions that basically reflect the sun's rays back into space that would in theory cool the temperature of the earth and the idea is that we slow down global warming this way obviously it's experimental it's untested how would it work
1: there are all sorts of intermediate technologies here too so there's a technology referred to sometimes as marine cloud brightening, where we would manipulate clouds to make them whiter so they'd reflect more sunlight back to space. That in theory is possible and in theory could have a sort of regional cooling effect. But the biggie, the big one that the book sort of builds to is this idea that you could spray some kind of reflective substance particles into the stratosphere these would bounce sunlight back to space before it hit the Earth, so you'd really be getting less direct sunlight on planet Earth, and that would have a cooling effect.
0: Obviously, we haven't tried this on a large scale as humans, but there is a natural analog to this with volcanoes spilling ash into the atmosphere.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not actually the ash that um, has this impact. It's the sulfur dioxide from volcanoes that gets you know, ejected up into the stratosphere, floats around, forms these tiny little, what are called aerosols, they're essentially little droplets that are highly reflective, why you get such beautiful sunsets after a big eruption. And, you know, people have measured, after Mount Pinatubo in the 90s, uh, climate scientists were very interested in this effect, what effect would this have? And they measured it pretty precisely, and it definitely led to a temporary drop in average global temperatures as a result of this effect and you know this has been understood for you know quite a while that volcanoes have this impact and so the idea behind solar geoengineering is could we mimic that and people are also exploring different materials people have even floated the idea of using diamond dust you know there are all sorts of ideas out there
0: for a long time environmentalists have seen geoengineering as a total non-starter, because the argument is, it's a long shot if it would work at all. And it's a distraction from the real work of reducing carbon emissions. What do you think of that criticism?
1: Well, that, you know, that's a big concern, this question of if you dangle in front of people some way that we might be able to counteract climate change without actually reducing our emissions— you know are you just going to encourage people to you know behave badly? And I think that's a big worry, and I think it's a legitimate worry. on the other hand, we are behaving badly, and so the counter argument is, even at the point that we do stop emitting c o two, we haven't gotten back the climate of the past. We've simply stopped putting more heating into the system. it'll take you know probably a few to several decades on some level, century scale to really, you know, reach a new equilibrium, but, you know, you're going to continue to melt the ice caps. You're going to continue to see sea level rise. The oceans are going to continue to warm. So the counter argument is, well, you may find yourself in such a terrible situation that you're going to want uh, some way of counteracting some of that warming because the uh, alternatives are so awful. And I think that both of those are very legitimate arguments.
0: Yeah. The other the other part of this that's, that's interesting is is the word geo. I mean, it is a, a global thing, and when you're talking about cane toads in Australia, it's at least limited to Australia. Who gets to decide who pours stuff into the stratosphere?
1: It's very difficult to think through because you know we're not very good at global governments. You know, witness what's happened with climate change, and people have pointed out that a potentially frightening thing about geoengineering is. It could be done, you know, in theory by one country or even, once again, in theory by one very, very rich person. I don't, you know, personally, once again, this is, you know, one woman's opinion. I don't find that a very compelling argument because this is not something you do in secret. This is something that you are flying lots and lots of flights in the stratosphere. We certainly know how to shoot down planes in the stratosphere if we don't want them there. And so, you know, I think that a bunch of very powerful nations could do it, you know, collectively, but I don't think one country is going to be able to sort of go rogue here. Um, but the question of how you decide and who gets to decide I don't have a good answer for that. I don't think anyone has a good answer for that. You know, the obvious body, I guess, would be the UN. But, you know, what have we really been able to agree on as a world since the UN was founded on some level?
0: (laughs) The UN is only as powerful as we say it is, is the thing, yeah. So there are a lot of risks and reasons to not do this, this kind of thing. But there's an argument that to mitigate the impact of climate change we need some form of geoengineering because we've already just emitted so much carbon. Did your opinion on geoengineering change at all when you were writing this book?
1: I certainly think that the book expresses a lot of trepidation <laughs> about even, you know, that we'd even be considering this. Um, I think I described it in, in one interview as as a sort of respectful horror Um, But I do, I did find the arguments of people working on it who were very, very smart scientists, you know, really, um, really smart and a lot more immersed in, you know, the science of the atmosphere than I am, certainly. Um, The argument that, look, there's a lot of talk now about fixing the climate or reversing climate change. That's not possible. Uh, The only possibility here is, you know, carbon dioxide removal that's still very slow. That's not going to have an impact fast. We don't have a lot of, you know, weapons in our quiver for doing anything about climate change fast. I found that conversation to be more fraught, I suppose, than I expected going in. That doesn't mean that I exactly changed my view on it, but I have to say that some compelling arguments can be made.
0: after the break more with elizabeth colmer Invisible is sponsored by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With Squarespace, it's easy to create a beautiful website all on your terms. You don't want to miss Fluid Engine, a next-generation website design system from Squarespace with reimagined drag-and-drop technology for desktop and mobile. And with their new asset library, you're able to manage all your files from one central hub and use them across the Squarespace platform. Get started with one of Squarespace's professional website templates with designs for every category and use case, then customize your look, update content, and add features to fit your unique needs. I made my website, romanmars.com, a long time ago on Squarespace. It was simple. It was easy to do. It was exactly what I needed. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four to five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash 99. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash 99. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. when you think about our interventions and the counter interventions it's pretty easy to consider all of those interventions as unmitigated disasters <laughs> but it's kind of a selection bias because there are lots of interventions that people like an awful lot like doggies for example because dogs only exist because humans intervened and domesticated wolves
1: absolutely and and i i put that Exactly what you're saying to David Keith, who's really one of the chief scientists, who's probably spent more time thinking about geoengineering than a- anyone else on Earth, a professor of, um, I think, applied physics at at Harvard. And uh, he said, yes, you're, you're showing your biases. You know, it's impossible to do that calculation of how many of these interventions, you know, we would consider good or bad, you know, starting with agriculture, as you say, you know, domesticating corn and wheat and rice. Was that, was that a bad choice? Some people would say, yes, Jared Diamond has called agriculture you know, the worst mistake in human history. But here we are, and there's no going back from that. We're not getting rid of agriculture. That's for damn sure. We can regret a lot of choices that have been made over the last 10,000 years or longer even, but we can't turn around now with you know almost 8 billion people on the planet. That's just not really an option.
0: Something about the psychology that I found really fascinating is particularly when you were talking about New Orleans. So, you know, New Orleans is a place that by all accounts, at least in terms of hydrology, uh, shouldn't exist. It it, it was a struggle from the beginning. It it remains a struggle both to keep it dry enough to to live on and surprisingly keeping it wet enough to be a port, which was new information to me. But it's clear that we will always pile intervention upon intervention to keep New Orleans going. Um, Is this just who we are?
1: Well, I think that New Orleans is a great example of this phenomenon. It's, you know, at a perfect location where the Mississippi hits the Gulf. It was a swamp when the French strategically decided to settle it in 1718. And, you know, prior to that, people had lived in the area. Native Americans had been living in the Mississippi Delta for, you know, thousands of years. But they didn't insist on staying in a place that was going to get flooded during flood season. Once you start being a sedentary species that builds cities and has tremendous infrastructure, you're invested in that infrastructure. And that was happening in New Orleans right now, more and more humongous interventions. I mean, just, you know, even just what was built after Katrina, just massive, massive waterworks Is a very striking example, and New Orleans' situation is extremely precarious because of the nature of the delta, which is sinking, and sea level, which is rising. So relative sea level is a tremendous problem. But that being said, every major coastal city in the world is going to be playing out some version of this. To what extent are we going to be willing to move and to what extent are we going to try to eke out every possible decade from places that are going to be threatened increasingly threatened by sea level rise we have already locked in substantial sea level rise no one can tell you exactly how much the more longer we continue to emit co2 the more sea level rise we're getting that's just a very clear relationship but you know you just go through the list every coastal city is going to be grappling with this over the next, the rest of the century.
0: If we're locked into like an intervention cycle forever because of our lifestyle choices and and our priorities, have we gotten more precise? Have we gotten, have we learned something?
1: Yes. I think we've gotten a lot more knowledgeable. You know, I do think, for example, if someone decided to build a you know, a new city on deltaic soils, you know, someone would raise their hand and say, you know, wait a sec, this is a problem. But that raises a lot of new problems, right? So, you know, there are going to be all these interventions proposed for all these big cities, for example, you know, they're already looking at New York, how are you going to protect New York? There are lots of massive Possibilities. People are going to raise a lot of objections to them as well. They should about what they're going to do to you know the ecosystem, the New York Harbor, how they're going to displace water from one place to another, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, sea levels are rising. You know, so um, so I'm not saying that massive interventions are the way to go. It's quite possible that we need to take a lot of smaller steps which are much more difficult to coordinate than a big massive problem but those also even even those run into resistance so we're in a pretty complicated you know time and situation where a lot of our values are going to come into conflict you know both in terms of wanting even neighborhoods or cities or whatever to have a sort of a certain self-determining quality but also not being able to agree, you know, on what intervention we need. Meanwhile, you know, the water's creeping up. So I don't know how that's going to play out. I think it would be fascinating if it you know, weren't so scary.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
0: Elizabeth Colbert's new book is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Chris Perube. Music and sound mix by our director of sound, Sean Rial. Our senior producer is Delaney Hall. Kurt Colstead is the digital director. The rest of the team includes Emmett Fitzgerald, Joe Rosenberg, Vivian Lay, Christopher Johnson, Abby Madon, Katie Mingle, Sophia Klasker, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW in San Francisco and produced on Radio Row, which is scattered across the continent but will always be in beautiful, downtown oakland california we are a founding member of radiotopia from prx a fiercely independent collective of the most innovative listener-supported 100 artist-owned podcasts in the world find them all at radiotopia.fm you can tweet at me at roman mars in the show at 99pi.org or on instagram and reddit too and you can find out all about our interventions in the world of podcasting at 99pi.org
1: Utopia PRX Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more.